Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, and He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. And so we love to give the preeminence to the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said earlier today, we must all decrease and He must increase. And to give Him all the praise and all the glory and ascribe all the marvel and all the wonder to His grace leaves us in the dust where we belong and He gets all the blessing and honor and glory. Let me take a few minutes and share the simplest few thoughts with you. You may open your Bible to the book of Hebrews, the first chapter. It's early in the year, and most Bible readers have been reading about the religious life of Israel. Their priests, their priest robes, their sacrifices, their feast days, all the animals that had to be killed repeatedly for blood to be shed. It's also the Lord's Supper today. Do you understand who died for you? Do you really understand who died for you? The book of Hebrews is my favorite book of the Bible because it has one theme and it's such a simple theme for a simple person that only wants one theme and that theme is the preeminence of Jesus Christ. It has no other theme to deal with. Jesus is better. And Jesus is better. And Jesus is better. And Jesus is better using those words over and over again. Let me share just a little tiny bit with you for the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ and for you to know who died for you when we come to this table. In Hebrews chapter 1, the first three verses, Jesus is better than Israel's prophets. I want you to think about the great prophets of Israel. Samuel, David, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi. Wonderful prophets. They could bring God's Word right down to the people and they could declare straight from God's mouth what God wanted Israel to have. There was no other nation on earth that had prophets like this. These men would reveal Jehovah's will to the people. But look at what Hebrews says. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, that's at different times and in various ways, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, He's better than the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. The prophets spoke to Israel for 1,500 years, but the Apostle Paul could write these words that God is not speaking to us by prophets anymore. He's now speaking to us by His Son. And His Son is far greater than those prophets. 
And if all those prophets were here today, they'd all be shouting, Amen, and demanding that He get all the preeminence. He hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. And here's what the Lord wants you to know about His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things. The prophets aren't heirs of anything without their relationship to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is appointed the heir of all things. Think of anything you want to think about. Jesus Christ inherited it. By whom also He made the worlds. Jesus in His divine nature created all things. This person died for you. Who cares if Daniel died for you? Who cares if Isaiah died for you? Who were they? One a eunuch in Babylon? It doesn't matter in comparison. Isaiah, a filthy-mouthed prophet who knew when he was in the presence of God that woe was to him for having a mouth, but not the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the heir of all things. He made the worlds. Any world that you can think of, He made it. He's the brightness of God's glory. These other men couldn't even handle being in the presence of God's glory when it was dulled for them. But He is the brightness of it. He's the express image of the person of God. When you see the Lord Jesus Christ in the pages of Scripture and by the revelation of the Holy Spirit to your heart, it is the express image of God. It's what God wants you to know about Him. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. The earth continues to revolve and the earth rotates and the earth goes around the sun and the earth has seasons and the earth is sustained at 23rd and 3rd degrees of an angle on its axis by the word of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. All things by Him consist. Every atom and every smaller particle than atoms that exist in our universe are held together by His almighty power. This man died for you. And when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. We are speaking about the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was God in the flesh, but he was a man. He was born of a woman. He was laid in a manger. He was swaddled with clothes. He was 12 years old at one occasion. As he grew up, he grew in favor with God and men. He grew in wisdom and in stature. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This man died for you. You better believe on him and you better confess with his mouth that he is Lord of all because he is. You better believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead because that's what this first chapter is about. The Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and given a position at the right hand of God over the universe, though He's a man. Jesus is fully man and Jesus is fully God. And He is seated at God's right hand and He died for us. And we have the Lord's Supper to remember this man dying for us. Samuel and David and Elijah may have been Good prophets, and they were, but they didn't die for their nations. 
and their death wouldn't have done any good anyway. But this man did. Let's go on. Jesus, in the next two chapters, is better and greater than God's angels. The Apostle Paul is going to take everything important to the Jews, one by one, and show that Jesus is better. You think of any prophet that you think is great, and you know that I love our brother David, but Jesus is so much greater than him. And in three verses, he kind of blows out the prophets, doesn't he? And for that nation that trusted so much in their prophets, they're all gone because there's no comparison with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he takes up in that fourth verse angels, and he will deal with angels through the end of chapter 2. And I can only tell you about it. But he was made so much better than the angels in verse 4. I want you to understand something about the Bible when you read it. When Jesus was made of a woman in a mother's belly, he wasn't made better than the angels. He was made lower than the angels. His incarnation, when he came into this world and Mary was his mother, he was below the angels. So when it says right here, being made so much better than the angels, it's describing him being seated at the right hand of God. He rose from the dead, he ascended up into heaven, and he was exalted as the Lord's Christ, as God's Son. And then he was made better than the angels by his position. Very important for you to understand. Being made so much, so much better. I love the words of Scripture. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. What is his name? It's the name before which every knee shall bow. Jehovah is salvation. Jesus. The Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God. There are no better words in any language than Jesus, the Son of God. And if you don't have time for Him, He's going to be Jesus, the judge of the quick and the dead. He was made so much better than the angels. What angel has died for you? They don't even know how to die. They don't even have life as we understand it. They're spirits. This man died for you. I want you to know him just a little bit before we come to his table. He was made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Jesus, the Son of God. Both names. Jesus and the Son of God. Friend of which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. Those words, "This Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee, is not the conception of Jesus. It's not the birth of Jesus. It is the resurrection of Jesus. Now I've already told you that from this passage, but if you were to go to Psalm 2 and find where these words were first given, and then you were to go to Acts chapter 13 when Paul used those words from Psalm 2 that are used here also, Paul tells us very plainly they are referring to the resurrection. This day have I begotten thee from the dead and place thee at my right hand. He is called the first begotten of the dead. 
This is about His resurrection. Because prior to His resurrection, He wasn't made so much better than the angels. Not yet. But He was by the time Paul wrote this, because this is 30 years after His resurrection from the dead. Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten Thee. And again, from another passage, I will be to Him a Father, and He shall be to me a Son. This is the Son of God that came into this world that died for you. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Those shepherds that were out in their in the fields keeping their flocks by night, the sky was ripped asunder, and the angelic host praised the child that was born in Bethlehem. And the earth shook with their praise, and it was glorious splendor because God had said, let all the angels of God worship a little human baby. He died for you. This is our Savior. It was the Lord Jesus Christ that created angels by His divine nature in verse 7. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who has said of Him in verse 8, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. This man died for you. And it just goes on to describe it like that, about the Lord Jesus Christ being greater than the angels. Verse 13, to which of the angels did God say at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? God never said that to an angel. God said that to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels, what word was spoken by angels? The law of Moses was given by the disposition of angels. The book of Galatians teaches us that. The Bible tells us that Jehovah God came down on Mount Sinai with ten thousands of His saints. And those weren't church members or believers. Those were sanctified ones, His watchers, His holy ones, His holy angels. The law of Moses came by the disposition of angels. Angels were great in the history of Israel. Jacob, when he had to leave home because Esau was going to kill him, he used a rock for a pillow, and he saw a ladder ascending up into heaven, and the angels descending and ascending on that. When he came back and sent a message to Esau, I've been with Laban for 20 years, I'm coming home. A host of angels appeared to him and blessed him with the courage to make that trip home. And you know about the angel of the Lord that wrestled with him. The angels delivered Elisha when he was in the city of Dothan. And he asked for the Lord to open the eyes of his servant to see all the chariots of fire round about. One angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. An angel shut the mouths of hungry lions to save our brother Daniel. But we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, because we have not heard them from angels, but we have heard them from the Son of God. Lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, if the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai was steadfast, it was absolute. You either did it or you didn't. If you did it, you'd be blessed. If you didn't, you'd be cursed. If you've been reading your Old Testaments, you've read those words. 
The word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. Everyone in the Old Testament was punished that disobeyed, even though it only came from angels. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord Himself and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him? God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to His own will. Question mark. The question being, how shall we escape? We understand this in a Hebrew context, but I'm not going to chase that one right now because it's unnecessary. I just want you to understand that the one that died for you is far greater, made so much better than the angels. He upholds all things by the word of His power. They're His servants. He is the Son of God. He has a better name. He has a better inheritance. He is the one that fulfills Psalm 8 that says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Thou hast put all things under his feet. He fulfills that passage if we were to keep reading in Hebrews chapter 2. He is the one that took on him the nature of Abraham so that he could die. He took on flesh and blood to defeat the works of the devil. Verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, what children? The children that God gave to the Lord Jesus Christ that are in verse 13. Behold, I am the children which God hath given me. He took on their nature, that is the flesh and blood nature that you and I have. He also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. That's who died for you, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's greater than the prophets of Israel. He's greater than the angels of Israel. And when we come to chapter 3, hurry with me now, he's greater than Moses. Verse 1 of Hebrews 3, a very definite change. He ends with angels in verse 18 of chapter 2. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Jesus is greater than Moses. The house is the house of God. The house is the church of God of the Old Testament. Moses was just a servant in it. Jesus was the son of it. Moses was just a builder in it. God owned it through Jesus Christ by covenant. So he's better than Moses. You come to chapter 4, and it says in verse 8, For if Jesus had given them rest, and that word Jesus there is not the Son of God, that is Joshua. That is the same as Acts chapter 7, and I believe verse 45, 
where it's used the same way. Two occurrences in the New Testament where that successor to Moses is referenced. But when you use the word Joshua, that's a Hebrew word, and it's translated to Greek and then to English, we end up with Jesus, which tells us two things. This is Joshua, but the name of Jesus means Joshua. And what does Joshua mean? Jehovah is salvation. Jesus is greater and better than Joshua. For if Joshua had given them rest in the land of Canaan, you know, the Bible speaks about God having a rest for His people. And Paul has reasoned so far in this fourth chapter that that rest cannot be the seventh day of the week. Then he moves to the fact that it can't be Joshua giving them rest in the land of Canaan then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Because the rest is promised in Psalm 95, which came 500 years after Joshua. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God, in verse 9. There is a rest that the Old Testament doesn't provide. And that rest is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it says in verse 11, Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. We want to be believers, not like the Old Testament Jews that missed the land of Canaan, which was a rest, but it wasn't the rest that was promised in Psalm 95. So we need to labor. I don't care what Arminians say. This is what the Apostle Paul would say. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. And then in the next verse, it begins a long section that runs all the way through the middle of chapter 10, that Jesus is greater than Israel's priests. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. I'm gonna, I wanna, I wanna show you this Hebrews 4.12. Why is it dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ right here? Because Paul is starting his lengthy section of showing that Jesus is a superior priest. How well does this priest know you? This priest is the Word of God that can separate between your soul and spirit and between your joints and marrow and is a discerner of every thought and intent of your heart. There has never been a priest like that ever. That is why it's right there. Because he is transitioning to Jesus being the greatest priest. And you can tell that by looking at verse 14. Seeing then, he's drawing a conclusion from 12 and 13 to comfort you that what a priest we have. In his divine nature, he knows every single thing about you. In his human nature, he tasted death in your place. Because he took on flesh and blood to die for you. And in his flesh and blood capacity... As a man on earth for 33 and a half years, he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Now, do you know what I have just described in the way of a priest? 
He knows every single thing about you on the inside. And he has experienced every temptation you will ever face on the outside or inside. And he is both in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, let us come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain help in time of need. This just goes on and on because the priests of Israel were exceptional. They were able to offer worship up acceptable to God and they would bring God's presence down to man. They could make the offerings and the sacrifices of the people acceptable to God by slaying those animals a certain way. And Jesus is better than all of them. And it just goes on chapter after chapter with some of the neatest little comparisons You know, those priests did not take that office to themselves. They had to be born into the tribe of Levi, and they had to have Aaron as their father, and they were not put in that office without being called. It would say in chapter 5 and verse 4, No man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. You didn't get to be a priest in Israel, even if you were a Levite, but you didn't trace back to Aaron. Couldn't be a priest. You could only be a Levite. You got to haul water and chop wood. And carry stuff around on your shoulders. But you didn't make the offerings and you didn't wear the priestly robes. But where was Jesus Christ called to be a priest? Psalm 110 verse 4. Called to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And Paul, you know how many... Do you want a little Bible study for this afternoon? I might have another gift certificate. How many times is there an appeal made a priest after the order of Melchizedek? Why was that so important? Because it wasn't after Levi and it wasn't after Aaron. It was a totally new priesthood. We could go on for a long, long time. Chapter 7 would entertain us for quite a while itself. As the apostle there compares the priesthood of Levi and the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the apostle wants to point out that Abraham, who was the father of Levi, and Abraham, who was the greatest Jew that ever lived, when he met Melchizedek, who paid tithes to whom? Just Who who paid tithes to whom? Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And who blessed whom? Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And you know what Paul would say about a transaction like that? And without all contradiction, there is no contradicting this fact, the less is blessed of the better. Melchizedek was better than Abraham, and Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I'm not a very good time manager, but I don't care because everything that's happened in this assembly is very wonderful. And I'm sorry that I have a whole lot more I'd like to say to you, but I hope that I've said enough that when we come to the Lord's table today, you know who died for you. So I'll conclude in chapter 13 with a few thoughts from the last chapter. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Everything we can learn about the Lord Jesus Christ in this book of Hebrews, which is mind-blowing, wonderful, he never changes. Every priest changes. They get senile. They die. They forget. Jesus never changes. Verse 12, 
Wherefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people with His own blood, suffered without the gate. Jesus didn't die in Jerusalem. Jesus died outside the city of Jerusalem on Golgotha or Calvary. Let us go forth therefore unto Him without the camp, bearing His reproach. To For us to worship Jesus correctly, we're going to have to leave people. We're going to have to leave their idea of worship. We're going to have to go outside the camp to worship Him. This was written to Hebrews, and their camp was Jerusalem, and their church was the temple, and it was God's temple, and it was God's city. But a transition had taken place in the time of Reformation, and Jesus gave us an example of that. He died outside of Jerusalem. Verse 14 says, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Even when Paul was writing to Jews about the earthly city of Jerusalem, he never sounded like a premillennial dispensationalist that put any stock in the earthly city of Jerusalem. There was another Jerusalem to come, and it was above. We here on earth, we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. And it's in heaven, and it's going to come down out of heaven, as you can read about it in the last couple of chapters of Revelation. By Him, therefore, verse 15, that's by the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that we're about to celebrate. Therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. Jesus Christ makes our thanksgiving and the praise that you just witnessed in this church acceptable to God. It is sanctified as better than anything done under the Old Testament. The fruit of our lips. We don't bring the fruit of our fields or the fruit of our flocks or our herds. We bring the fruit from our harps and our hearts and our lips and we offer it to God and it is made acceptable through Jesus Christ and we ought to do it continually. And I'm thankful to be part of this church. Verse 20. My favorite One of my favorite sentences in the Bible is in verses 20 and 21. Do you know who died for you? He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than Aaron and any priest Israel had. He's greater than any sacrifice. He's the mediator of a better covenant based on better promises He is better and greater and greater and better than anything the Old Testament ever had. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus died for you, but He is not dead. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. He shed His blood to put the everlasting covenant into force. And through the grace and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, each of us that believe on Him can be perfect and do His perfect will in the sight of God. Amen. Amen.